Well, good morning, everyone. This is the third class on the life and theology of John Owen. And uh, we'll be looking today at uh, John Owen's years as an administrator at Oxford. Um, and we're also going to dive in a little more deeply into some of his writings during this period in the 50s um, that, are, uh, that were significant in the day that they were written, but they've also been read widely even up until today. And so we'll get into that um, over the next hour, uh, but let's pray before we do that. Father in heaven, we're humbled by your goodness to us in Christ, and we're thankful for the long line of, of godly saints from whom we can learn and, and emulate um, and, and we thank you for them, Lord. It's a gift that we can study uh, their lives and their writings uh, as they help us uh, know you, uh, help us to read the scriptures more faithfully. Um, help us now, Lord, encourage us um, in this next hour, we pray. Amen. Well, uh, like I said, we're, we're looking at Owen in the 50s. Um, today, um, and this would be a period uh, that would mark the peak of his professional career, uh, humanly speaking. Um, and, uh, you know, before we get, get into this, I'll just remind us kind of where we are in the trajectory of, of these five lessons on Owen. Um, so we started... Um, you know, looking at his early years, especially at those as a young pastor at Cogshaw. Um, and then we zoomed in on a few month period in his life uh, where he was abroad in Ireland. Um, and we talked about some of those spiritual impressions that were made upon him during that time and, um, and, and what a harrowing experience that was for Owen. Um, and then now we've come to the 50s in Owen's term as an administrator at Oxford. Um, Next week, we'll consider Owen as a persecuted Christian beginning in 1660 to the end of his life in 1683. Um, and then finally, two weeks from now, we'll step back and just talk about how Christians have read uh, Owen in the past and, and where to begin if, if we want to start reading Owen today, uh, what that might look, look like for us. Um, but then now today, here's, here's kind of an outline of what the next hour will look like. Um, We'll start with just kind of contextualizing um, Owen in this period, uh, being appointed as Dean of Christ Church, Oxford, and then later becoming Vice Chancellor of the University. Uh, then we'll move to Owen's writings, and we'll discuss three books um, that he wrote while an administrator at Oxford. Uh, he would write more than these three, and, and maybe I'll discuss those kind of if we have time, but the majority of our time will We'll be looking at three texts specifically that are, that are listed there. The first is uh, the Doctrine of Saints' Perseverance, written in 1654. Then we'll, 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 we'll look at this, uh, this next book, The Mortification of Sin, which he wrote in 1656. Um, and that's where we come to that. Uh, you may have heard that, that excellent Owen phrase, be killing sin or it'll be killing you. That's from Mortification of Sin. So we'll look at that. And then the third book, um, this is my personal favorite book that Owen uh, wrote called Communion with God. It was written the next year in 1657. Um, 
And this is, this is some of Owen's most profound work. Um, he's building a lot on Calvin um, and, and the Reformed tradition, but he, but he goes further and he helps us think about uh, what it means for a believer to have a distinct relationship with each member of, of the Trinity. And so we'll get into that uh, as we go along. Uh, and then finally, we'll, in the, this last point, we'll just talk about uh, what it meant for Owen to leave Oxford, how his tenure there um, at the university came to an end, um, and what, what was going on in England uh, when, when uh, Charles II would come back to the throne and, and it looked like for Owen, maybe all of his work had been done in vain, um, that, that, that the Puritan project um, had, had come crashing down. Um, and so we'll talk about what that meant for Owen. Um, so talk about Oxford, saints perseverance, mortification of sin, communion with God, and then kind of the fall of, of Puritanism. Um, I want, to, I want you to listen to, for something as we kind of go across uh, this path, um, because there's something I think we can learn from Christians, or a, as Christians, rather, through the arc of this story. Um, listen for the hope and, and the zeal that Owen had um, uh, if, during this new ministry as he's approaching this new work at Oxford. Um, consider also the labor, um, the work, uh, that he put in writing and teaching and preaching and reforming the school. And, and then listen for that experience of defeat. You know, there's, there's kind of a rise and a fall during this little decade. And that's, that's really the story of Owen's life again and again and again, rise and a fall. Um, there's, there's gain and then there's loss. But what's true of Owen again and again is he's plodding forward as a faithful Christian uh, when times are good and when times are, are bad. And so you get a glimpse of that here in this, this little period as well. Um, so we'll begin here. Uh, becoming Dean of Christ Church uh, and Vice Chancellor of Oxford. So it was the spring of 1651 uh, when Owen was offered the job of Dean of Christ Church, um, which was a college at Oxford. Uh, and the job was offered to him by uh, his friend and patron, Oliver Cromwell, who was the chancellor of the university. Uh, if you're wondering why Owen was selected for the job, you'll remember this, this huge rise he had in popularity as he was preaching before parliament and the publication of a few significant books. Uh, he was chaplain to Oliver Cromwell's army. Um, and it became clear that Owen had a voice that was worth listening to. Um, and Oxford was in need of it. Um, you'll remember when Owen left the university as a, as a young boy, um, the, the ceremonialism and the, the superstition, the theology that he wasn't comfortable with, um, you know, it, that wasn't all quite there at that time, but some of it still remained, uh, just not to the same degree. Um, and that's because in, in 1647, Parliament had, had um, begun a process of, of reforming the school uh, that would take place in 1647, where they would appoint um, folks to look, look over the university, um, to kind of rid it of these uh, uh, marks of William Laud, um, uh, the Arminian theology that, um, that, that Owen and others sort of balked at. Um, you know, theolo theologically, now they were, they were teaching the doctrines of grace, the, unconditional election, definite atonement, effectual calling of the Spirit. Um, 
but they also wanted to rid the school of any dissidents, um, that, uh, people who were hanging on to loyalty to Charles I, the king who had been defeated and executed. Uh, and so the school, um, it had been cleaned up a lot from what it was before, but there was still, there was still an, an overhaul that was needing to take place at Oxford for it to be the type of school that uh, Puritans imagined it, it could be, um, making, it, making it more of a, of a, of a Puritan institution. Um, and so um, faculty, uh, students, but especially faculty who weren't on board with this, um, either theologically or politically, um, they were out. And Christ's church, uh, where Owen was dean, it was hit the hardest by this new program, meaning um, Christ Church had the highest number of faculty uh, members who would be ejected for refusing to give their allegiance uh, to the new regime, to the Commonwealth. Um, and so there was a lot of work to be done, a lot of responsibility that would fall upon Owen um, to sort of reform and rebuild the school. Um, in a lot of ways, he was rebuilding the school and kind of refashioning it with, with, a, new, with a new culture. Um, you know, some have said that, that Owen maybe was reluctant to take the job. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but you know that he was pretty successful as a leader of the school. Um, he also had a friend in Thomas Goodwin who was leading uh, Magdalen College and who he would take advice from. Um, and Goodwin was leading that college well. Um, Owen would assess um, kind of the teaching uh, that was taking place at, at his college. Um, he would assess uh, the preaching, um, and his goal was to make sure it was sound, to make sure it was biblical, um, that, it was, that it was faithful to the scriptures. Um, but in addition to uh, you know, monitoring what was being taught at his college, uh, and, and rebuilding, uh, which, which literally he, there was rebuilding going on at the school. There had been destruction um, of physical destruction of, of the university uh, in celebration of the defeat of the king. Uh, and so there was physical rebuilding. But besides that, Owen was just incredibly busy preaching and lecturing while he was um, uh, an administrator at, at Oxford. He would preach regularly at uh, Christ Church Chapel. Um, and then he was promoted uh, to vice chancellor of the entire university and, and not long after, September of 1652, um, just a little over a year after moving to Oxford. Um, vice chancellor, of course, you know, it's, it's what would be president of, of our American universities. Um, and, and so Owen was incredibly busy. Um, and from then, he, he would be alternating with Goodwin uh, preaching at, at St. Mary's Chapel. Uh, and when it wasn't his week to preach there, he would be visiting his, his old home in Stadhampton nearby, preaching to friends that he would gather together. Um, but it was lecturing to students that Owen probably thought was, was still among his most important tasks. Um, he would appreciate the, uh, the responses he got from his lectures. Uh, uh, from students. Um, he, he was encouraged by those responses. He thought they were uh, bright and respectable. They were diligent. Um, he thought they were sharp students. And he was, he, he, he was, he was confident that, that um, 
his faculty was making an impact on them so that um, as they're studying theology, they're studying arts and sciences, that they would be able to go out into the world and, and live as faithful Christians who would influence um, culture. And, uh, you know, if, if, if anyone had, had the authority to commend them in that way, the authority to, to give a statement of appro- approval with credibility, it was, it was John Owen. Um, because he, he was at the peak of his career. He was, he was dean of Christ Church. He was head of the entire university. Uh, and on top of that, uh, just a month into his tenure as vice chancellor, Cromwell actually gave Owen even more authority. He, uh, he, he gave him his, a lot of his own power that he had as chancellor to settle disputes between, university, er, between colleges at the universities, at the university. Um, he had additional administrative duties that would normally fall to Cromwell. Owen was now given those. So he has just incredible sway of, of the direction of this school. And, and Owen was amazed by it. He, he would reflect on it that, that he thought nobody in the kingdom had, it, had, as, had as much um, authority in some sense than he did. He, he didn't expect to have this uh, type of rise that he did. Um, but he was, he was going to work and, and make as much of it as he could. Um, here's a picture of, of Owen while he's at Oxford. It doesn't quite look like him, does it? Have you seen a picture of Owen? He's, he's a bit rounder than we've seen elsewhere. Uh, and he's dressed in the academic gown that you know, he would come to hate. And uh, he would try to remove from the university by, by 1656. Um, that, and that was just another part of the reforms he wanted to make at the school. He thought the, the, the gowns, the caps, the gowns, that fashion, um, he called them badges of scholars' distinctions that, um, you know, he thought it was, he thought it was extra fluff. Um, and and he, was, he was wanting to push that out um, as, you know, by 1656. This was obviously before then. Um, but it's kind of ironic that he, as he was trying to push out this kind of academic fashion, he was becoming known for his own bit of fashion. Um, I think that's quite ironic. You, you, you read some comments from his students uh, who remembered uh, how he would wear bright colors and he'd wear leather boots up to his knees with a ribbon tied around him. Uh, one of his students was John Locke. Um, and John Locke may have thought that Owen was a bit full of himself. Uh, he, he writes a few things where um, you're not really sure if he's saying them in, in tongue-in-cheek or not about um, Owen's view of himself. Um, another student, he, he remembered that, that uh, this is a quote from him, that Dr. Owen had enough powder in his hair to discharge eight cannons, right? <laughs> and it's, it's funny, right? To, and I think it's good to, to think about Owen in this way. Um, having his own, you know, idiosyncrasies, you know, and, um, you know, carrying his own bit of ironies, you know, as, as we all do in different ways. Um, you know, but as, as his students may have enjoyed kind of poking fun at, at, at him, um, Owen, during this period, would maintain a, a level of, of serious focus, um, that was, that was really necessary to do the work that God had called him to in this period. And a great deal of that work, it came in the form of, of theological and devotional 
devotional writing. Um, and so we come to um, this, this first book we'll discuss, uh, The Doctrine of Saints' Perseverance, um, written in 1654. Uh, it's the first of, of three books that, that we'll look at today. The book itself is massive. It's well over 600 pages, um, which, is, it's, it's, which is kind of remarkable in itself because Owen would, would complain that he, he wished he had more time to write. Um, another one of those kind of curious statements that Owen makes about you know, the time he had and what resources were available to him. But, uh, but the book was written in response to another book by a man named John Goodwin um, in 1651. And, and John Goodwin's book was called Redemption Redeemed. And this is John Goodwin, not, not the Thomas Goodwin that, that I mentioned. John Goodwin was a minister who uh, he enjoyed the renewed Puritan emphasis on spirituality, on, on personal spiritual discipline and piety. Uh, but he was also one who opposed much of the theology of the majority of, of Puritans. Um, and, and indeed, the, it was, you know, he, he would oppose the theology of the Reformers in a lot of ways. Um, by that, I, I, I just mean that um, where, where the Puritans and Reformers would, would go to the scriptures and, and find that, that God saves people not on any, any condition, any precondition with, within them, but, it, but according to his own free, uh, sovereign mercy, and where the reformers and the Puritans, they would, um, they, you know, they would they would read of the of the particular, the definite nature of of the atonement, um, and they would they would uncover the, you know, the recover rather, not uncover. They would recover the biblical truth that um, the Holy Spirit preserves finally and and eternally, eternally all those whom He has drawn. Goodwin here is going to push back on these things, um, especially in this case, in the la- on this last one about um, the saints' perseverance. Goodwin's going to push back and say, "No, no, 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 no. We can't. We can't say that Christians can't lose their sal- salvation." He would say, "No, true believers can fall from the true faith." That's that's good. That's John Goodwin's position. Goodwin was probably afraid of what that doctrine might mean. Um, he thought it. He thought it could mean that um, that people would would fall into a false security um, of of salvation, and then of lawlessness um, or of disregard for personal holiness. I believe, you know, I, I'm saved, so now I can go and do whatever. That was that was probably the fear that that Goodwin had. And it, it resonates in some ways, but, but only if we have sort of a caricature of what the Puritans believed rather than what the Puritans actually believed. Um, because that belief that a Christian can't lose his or her salvation, it's not a belief uh, held as a, as a license to go sin. Um, but rather, it's, the Puritans understood it as, as a positive statement about how God is unchangeable and uh, in, his, in his nature and in his promises, they don't change. And, and those promises um, of God to save his people, they would go hand in hand with the warnings of Scripture. Um, warnings in Scripture to, 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 that tell us to strive for holiness and to not fall away. Um, God keeps us and his spirit empowers us to walk in step with the gospel. Those things went hand in hand in Puritan theology. And 
Whereas Goodwin would read the warning passages in Scripture about falling away as, as evidence that Christians could lose their salvation. But that's not what the passages teach. And we're, th- we're thinking of here warning passages in the book of Hebrews or Matthew, Matthew chapter 7 or in Colossians chapter 1. I'll give that as an example. Colossians 1, where you see, you see Paul say that you were once alienated and Christ has reconciled you to himself by his death to present you holy and blameless before God, if indeed you continue in the faith. And this passage and, and those like it, they, what they do is they, they serve a particular function. Um, it, in the same way you read a poison label on a bottle and you say, no, don't drink that. You, uh, that that's, that's how these, these function. The Spirit enables us to to read those warnings of Scripture and heed them. You know, we, we have the eyes to see. You know, we have the ears to hear, and, and we listen. Um, I've been helped by, by Tom Schreiner here, who, who explains that these warnings in Scripture, they provide the means by which God's promises are secured. That's, so that's how um, the Puritans would, un, would understand uh, those passages in particular, but... Um, these are things that Owen is going to address in his response to Goodwin. But, you know, Owen, Owen seemed to think that, as he was reflecting on Goodwin's work, uh, that Goodwin was really failing to grasp the scriptures. Um, he felt like his, his readings, um, they, lacked, uh, they lacked firm exegesis, that, um, you know, a, a critical reading, a, a thorough reading, an explanation of the text. Um, and instead, he thought that, that Goodwin was more relying on, uh, on metaphors and analogies, uh, getting creative with, with his words to make a point rather than actually dealing with the text. That was Owen's criticism of Goodwin's work. And Owen was sharp to recognize this, and he, and he, and he sort of jests at, at Goodwin in his response. And um, you can look what he says about it here. Um, he says of, of Goodwin's work, that um, it, it's rolling through this field, his expressions swell over all bounds and limits, metaphors, similitudes, parables, all help on the current through the, through the streams of it, though the streams of it being shallow and wide, a little opposition easily turns it for the most part aside. You know, he's using some of his, his, his own style there to sort of, I guess, make fun of him. But beyond... Um, you know, the, the ironic remarks that, that Owen would make uh, at, at Goodwin's expense. Um, the work on perseverance, it really is remarkable writing. Um, Joel Beakey is an author that I, that I mentioned a couple weeks ago. Um, he said about this text that, that Owen's profundity of thought, uh, thoroughness of exposition, uh, con- consistent rigor of application, none in the reform camp, writing on perseverance, have surpassed Owen's magisterial pen. Um, and so this wasn't just an opportunity to slam Goodwin. Um, it, it was dutiful work that uh, Owen had been working on for several years before its publication, really from the time that, that Goodwin's work came out. Um, and there were topics that he would cover um, that, that were of great importance to Christians. Um, and you can get a glimpse of that uh, here, when you, you read the, the dedication uh, to the book, um, it outlines the work 
um, and kind of gives good insight into what Owen's intent was. It may be too small to read, but I'll, I'll read it if you can't see it. Um, Owen says about his intent that it's that all the saints of God may yet enjoy that peace and consolation, which is believing that the eternal love of God is immutable, that he is faithful in his promises, that his covenant ratified in the death of his son is unchangeable, that the fruits of the purchase of Christ shall be certainly bestowed on all them for whom he died, and that everyone who is really interested in these things shall be kept unto salvation. The aim of my uh, present plea and contest, this is the aim of my present plea and contest. Um, you know, when you, when, you read, when you read that dedication and you spend time with Owen, which we'll talk about in, in two weeks, you spend time reading him, um, which, I, which I hope everyone will do. Um, you read things like this and you're reminded that Puritanism wasn't, it wasn't all fighting, it wasn't vitriol and, and polemic. Uh, it wasn't all that and definitely wasn't about stealing uh, Christian's happiness, but it, it was about, you know, and for Owen, it's, it's about um, loving God and, and, and understanding a God who, who, um, who loves his people. Um, and and it's, it's, a, it's about Owen, uh, for Puritanism and for Owen, it's, it's about helping the people of God come into peace and comfort um, in, in the love of God. Um, well, that's kind of general things about the text. Here's a bare outline of uh, the arguments he's going to make on perseverance, um, which we've kind of covered a bit. But uh, first, the first argument is that God has an immutable nature. Sinclair Ferguson has said on this point that God has engaged himself to his people and their relationship to him is irrevocable. Um, the second argument he's going to make is that God's purposes are immutable. So that, that means that they're not contingent on anything other than his own will. Um, his decrees don't depend on something else. Namely, they don't depend on our ability to hold tight to him uh, for the decree to work. Um, the third argument is, is going to be based on the covenant of grace, which in Reformed theology is, is the, the promise of God uh, offered un, unto sinners. And this, this, is, this is from the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's the promise of God offered unto sinners for life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring faith of them that they would be saved and promising to give unto all those that are un, ordained unto life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. Um, and so we see throughout scripture how this this covenant is immutable because God himself and the person of Jesus Christ has undertaken uh, both the divine and the human responsibilities of the covenant. Um, the covenant is sure, and we, we can be sure of that, because uh, Christ has ratified the covenant in his, in his death on the cross. So he mediates the covenant um, and the promise of free grace for us is sure. Uh, it's just as sure as, as Christ's death was sufficient, and it was sufficient. And so our, our perseverance, Owen is going to say, is rooted in the surety of God's covenant. Uh, the fourth argument he makes um, speaks further about the promises of God in the gospel and the faithfulness of God to supply the gift of belief 
upon which eternal life uh, is promised. And then the fifth argument is going to zoom in on the priesthood of Christ um, and talk about the intercession of Christ on behalf of believers. Um, you can listen, listen to Owen here. Um, I'm not sure if I have the... Oh, no, I don't have this one as a slide. But I'll read, read you what Owen says here. Um, he's commenting on John 17. That which the Lord Jesus as mediator requests and prays continually of the Father according to his mind in order to the accomplishment of the promises made to him and covenant with him that shall certainly be accomplished and brought to pass. But thus in this manner upon these accounts does the Lord intercede for the perseverance of believers in their, in their preservation and the love of the Father unto the end. Therefore, they shall undoubtedly uh, be preserved. And so you read things like this, you, you, you focus on, on this text, and you come to see, you know, pe- people who come to, you know, believe this gospel of grace, they're not puffed up in pride as, as Goodwin thought they might be. Um, because you recognize that your salvation is owed to God, right? It's not, it's not owed to you. Uh, and so, so to contemplate this doctrine of perseverance, then, um, you know, something, it's, it's something that's rooted in who God is. It's rooted in what God has done. You know, and, and Owen thought it ought to be humbling, thought it ought to be motivating for Christians as they press forward in Christ's strength, as they, they long to see uh, the day ahead which God had prepared for them in eternity. Um, and so that was a desire that he thought ought to grow greater and greater in Christians' hearts, um, that desire for eternal bliss with Christ in heaven. But that desire would always be uh, coupled with something else, and that was going to be a growing hatred for sin. And so here we'll turn to another book Owen wrote um, just a few years after, The Mortification of Sin. It's written in 1656. I've mentioned the, the phrase, the, be killing sin or it'll be killing you, right? He has several others uh, like that. He, he that dares to dally with occasions of sin will dare to sin. And when sin lets us alone, only then may we let sin alone, right? It's, it's kind of, un, there's more of these, but it's, it's kind of uncharacteristically short for Owen. Um, they're uncharacteristic because Owen can be really wordy. Um, I, I've told a story before about uh, just a couple years ago, um, I, w- I was going to embark on this journey to read all of Owen's works. And I wanted, before I started, I wanted to calculate how long that was going to take. And so I'd have my wife um, with, a, with a stopwatch, and she would time how long it would take me to read a page as fast as I could out loud. And then we wanted to have fun with it, so we, we would see how fast I could read just one sentence of Owen. And, um, and the honest truth is, right when we started this, I started at the, at the top, of a page, top of the right page. And I flipped the page before I got to my first period. So that's to say, an entire page worth in little, little print. That's Owen, right? But that's not the case here in Mortification of Sin. And so when you come across a book like this, you notice it immediately. 
You know, it's, it is a little bit different. And that's... It, it was originally written in Latin and translated in English. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And it speaks to how, how, how good he was as, in his Latin, um, certainly. But uh, yeah, so that's not, that's not the case so much with, with this book. And the reason is that um, this book actually came out of those sermons that he was preaching to his students at Christ Church uh, at Oxford. Um, and remember, he, w- he was preaching to, to young teenage boys, right, as, as Owen was when, when he was a student there. And so it's very, it's very simple. Um, it's very practical uh, rather than elaborate. Um, and so uh, it actually, it's actually really easy to follow when he, when, uh, what he's doing in this book. There's three parts to it. Um, the, the necessity of killing sin, uh, the nature of killing sin, or the, or the nature of mortification, and then the means of mortification. Um, so it's just these three parts, necessity, nature, and means. Um, part one is going to explain what the whole book is really about. Um, by examining uh, a particular text, Romans 8.13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And from here, Owen's going to lay out three principles in this first part. The first for, for believers is that uh, killing sin is their duty. Um, and so he, he draws on Colossians 3.5 3, to, to put to death, therefore, what is what is earthly in you. He draws on this, this Pauline logic of, of, of disciplining oneself for godliness. Um, that's where you get that, that, that phrase, when, when sin leaves us alone, we may leave it alone. But as, as Owen tells us, sin is never less quiet than when it seems most quiet. Uh, and so it's our duty to be fighting sin at all times. Uh, the second principle he gives us in this first part is that the Holy Spirit is the one who is sufficient for the work of mortification. Uh, and that every effort that we put forth apart uh, from him, apart from the Holy Spirit, it's, it's all for nothing. Meaning you don't have the strength within yourself to fight sin. Um, and uh, uh, you, you, can, you can try um, whatever you like, but, but you can't. You'll, you'll fail. But Owen tells us Christians are given the Holy Spirit who is the author of the work of killing sin. Um, he's, he's promised to us as Christians, and Owen is, is here reminding us, really, that, um, that everything that we have that, that's good is it's really from God. Um, even the gift of fighting sin, uh, it's a gift that's communicated to us uh, by the Holy Spirit. So, yes, God gets credit for saving us, and God also gets credit for sanctifying us, um, and then the third principle that Owen gives us is that our life, our comfort, our, our spiritual life, um, they, they all depend on, on mortification. Well, what is mortification? So when you get to part two, but Owen is going to tell us really what mortification is not. Um, and so on this section of, on the nature of mortification, he's, he's really going to explain what mortification is not, and then he'll give some directives on, on how to deal with our sin, but he's going to tell us that uh, it's not something that we totally master in this life. We'll not totally mortify our sin. Um, mortification is not hiding sin. You think of like David in Psalm 32. 
uh, we're, we're prone to you know, cover up our sin as our bones waste away. And we know it's futile. The scriptures tell us it's a futile, evil enterprise. But Owen goes on, he tells us that, that mortification is not merely improving our willpower or, or our disposition towards sin. It's not a diversion of sin or distraction from our sin. Mortification is not even an occasional victory over our sin, though we can praise God for those. Uh, But mortification, he tells us, is the habitual, it's the continual weakening of sin at the root as a result of constant, constant war against it. So it's habitual, spirit-led warfare over time against the flesh as sin weakens and weakens and weakens. Now, Owen's going to tell us more here that if, if, we're mortif- if, if we're mortifying our sin, it will weaken. So we, will, we can expect to see frequent success. Um, there will be frequent success, though, only if we are, if we are Christians, right? Because we, we, we have to recognize that God is our strength in, in this fight. Um, and so we must trust him. And if we're trusting God, Owen is going to say we have to trust what he says about our sin, right? We have to realize that our sin in the first place is a real danger. Uh, and sometimes we fail to see that, especially if a particular sin or lust has taken hold on us or it's been tolerated in our lives for some time. We may, we may fail to see even the signs of its presence or how deep its roots have grown. Um, and so Owen is a big help for us here. Um, he asks us to consider these symptoms of a sin that is, ha, that is taken hold. Uh, he's, he says, has the, has the sin corrupted your heart over time? Have you suffered in power in fighting it? Are you at peace with the sin? Or are you even desiring to have peace but not by putting the sin to death, meaning are you, are you seeking peace, but not through the gospel? Are you applying grace and mercy to an unmortified sin? Do you fight the sin only because of the, of, of the consequences of the punishment that you might receive because of it? Has the sin withstood particular dealings or, or corrections, uh, dealings from God or corrections from other saints? Um, well, Owen, Owen tells us in those cases that what we, what we need to do is to load your conscience with the reality of what Scripture says about our sin. He says, think generally about your offense to God, but then move in specifically. Go, go closer. Um, move more and more into the specifics of your sin. He tells us to, to long for deliverance. Um, consider how the sin has gripped hold of you what gave way to it, what the circumstances were and the like, and then watch out for them. Uh, And while you wait, while you reflect on your sin, consider the glorious majesty of Christ. Don't speak false peace to yourself to soothe your conscience, but consider the riches of Christ and let Him alone speak Peace to your soul. Well, those principles on the nature of mortification 
And then those, those directives on how to think about our sin, Owen's going to conclude in part three um, by telling us the true means of killing sin, uh, what's really at work as we put uh, to death the flesh, and that's this. Mortification is accomplished through faith in the work of Christ on the cross to atone for our sin. That's number one. And then number two is the recognition that all sin killing is a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we take sin seriously, but we don't despair. Um, we fall upon the cross and then and diligent, diligently in step with the Spirit we fight. Right? So that's, that's Owen's direction for us. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot to say there, but it's a wonderful book. Um, but the topic of sin, it, it brings up another issue. Um, and that issue is really what it means to be a Christian and what, what it means to fellowship with God. Because um, a lot of what, what we discussed there in that book, it revolves around the reality of you know, having to fight sin. You, you first must know God, right? Um, and so at, at that note, we'll, we'll turn to this, this third book, um, Communion with God, where Owen gives some uh, helpful insight about what it means to belong to God, uh, meaning to be united to Christ. Owen, uh, Owen makes a helpful distinction between union and communion um, here, but he'll help us, help us understand what it means to belong to God and being united to him, and then what it means to experience him or commune with him. Um, that communion with God for Owen, it flows out of union with him. Right? Our communion with God, it flows out of being united to him in Christ. Um, Lowen published Communion with God in 1657. Um, and again, this book represented work that he had uh, done at Oxford and lectures that he had given to his students. Um, these were sermons and, and, and lectures from Christ Church, which he collected, and then he says he improved upon them and turned them into this book. I think this is, this is my favorite book of Owen's. Um, and he helps us see that our, that our union with God is owed to God alone. In other words, we were dead and God made us alive. Right, so Owen's very clear. This was a one-sided work. Um, we were enslaved. God made us free. We were sinners rescued by God and made righteous by the blood of Christ, um, united to him in faith. So that's our union with Christ. It doesn't change. Uh, it's constant. It's eternal, as we discussed. But given that union, you know, what is our experience with God like? Uh, how do we commune with God? You know, so once we're passive, right, in our, in our justification, uh, but, but now, united to Christ, Owen says we're, we're made active participants in sanctification, right? We have an active role in growing in intimacy with and knowledge of Christ. So that's, that's mainly the topic of this book, is understanding the manner in which uh, we may grow in understanding um, and, and the experience of, in Owen's words, the sweetness and excellencies of God. Um, and so Owen's going to build this whole book around a covenantal foundation in which believers are able to commune with each person of the Trinity individually. And what does that mean? It means that Intimacy with God was grace. It was, it was wrought in the Father's eternal elective love, 
It was accomplished through the mediator, Christ, and it was applied to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? There's, a, there's a Trinitarian work in, in redemption. Um, and, and so Owen's understanding of our response to God as Christians, it's also explicitly Trinitarian. So we've, we've talked about when we, when we went into death of death a few weeks ago about how Owen understood redemption in, in Trinitarian terms, the Father and the Son and the Spirit working there in unison together. Um, but So here too, Christian's devotional response, Owen says it, it ought to take a, a Trinitarian shape as well. Um, Christians, he says, experience the love of the Father toward them through believing, through believing and walking in the light. Owen tells us that our communion with the Father is the experience of free, undeserved, and eternal love. That's the natural response that comes from us, he says, um, is, is love for the Father. Right? As we experience the love of the Father, though, we're going to uh, return love to Him. And, and even there, you can, you can kind of see the the Trinitarian shape that, that this response takes because it's only by regeneration uh, and faith in Christ, our mediator, that we come to love the Father. Um, and, and faith in Christ, scriptures tell us, always result in love for the Father. Um, and then in regards to our communion with the Son, Owen defines a distinct relationship here under four terms, as we fellowship with the second person of the Trinity, sweetness, delight, safety, and consolation. Uh, he talks about the Christian receiving just uh, a rich stock of grace and compassion and all that Christ has to give. Um, and then he moves to the communion with the Spirit. When Owen talks about uh, a relationship that's fixed around power. Um, the Spirit is for believers an indispensable fountain, uh, empowering them for godly obedience. So you have the, the love of the Father, the mercy of the Son, the power of the Spirit. That, that was it for Owen. And, and then he, he would turn to his own experience in the book near the end, and, and he asked, what price now shall I set upon this love, speaking of the Father, and what, what shall I value this mercy that I have received, speaking of the Son? And he thought that, uh, you know, and it was in this humble posture that Christians would um, experience that distinct interchange of communion with, with the Spirit, too. And he says that Christians are filled with reverence by the Spirit, and, and, and they take care not to grieve Him. Uh, and they labor to preserve His temple, His habitation, keeping it pure and holy. Um, and so that's, that's kind of a distinct thing about this, this book um, is, is how he, he's going to articulate um, the experience of our, uh, our relationship with each, each member of the Trinity in different ways. Um, well, Owen was busy, as I mentioned, at Oxford writing in, in the 1650s, and he wrote much, much more than these three. Um, but he would get even busier as his days went on um, because really from, from 1660 on, where we're going to conclude today, um, his, his literary output would skyrocket. Um, uh, but while he would 
continue to be busy with writing, um, his, his time at Oxford would, would come to an end. Um, his, his, employment would, his employment would end in 1660. Um, his departure it seemed to fix, fixate around one major event, uh, and that was talk about Oliver Cromwell being offered uh, the crown. And uh, Owen was opposed to the move. Um, despite, despite his friendship with Cromwell and Cromwell really facilitating much of his, his career, Owen was against it. And he went so far as to be a ghost writer for uh, officers in the army where he would write and petition for Cromwell not to accept the offer to become king. And Cromwell was hurt by the petition uh, and consequently, o Owen's term as vice chancellor at Oxford, it wasn't renewed uh, in 1657. He would stay on as dean of Christ Church, uh, but it, it appeared that, that Owen was falling out of favor with, with Cromwell as, as a result of, of, uh, of this move against uh, Cromwell taking the crown, which, which he didn't. Um, Cromwell would die the next year in 1658 uh, and politically, England was, was becoming rather chaotic once, once again. His son, Cromwell's son, Richard, took, the, took uh, Oliver Cromwell's place as Lord Protector, uh, but he wasn't the leader that his father was. Um, and he would last less than a year. Uh, and by 1660, England was looking again at, at, uh, at the monarchy. It, there was... The, there was um, the prospect of Charles II, um, the son of the king who was executed, Charles I, 1649, uh, he was set to return to England. And you, th you th think of what that meant for Owen, who had commemorated the execution of the king not long before. Owen's now lost his, his, his job. He's no longer affiliated with, with Oxford and the man who's now his king is the son of uh, the king who, who Owen was pleased to see die. You know, what would that mean for revolutionaries like Owen who ruled during the last decade and had hopes of establishing a, a, you know, a Christian nation, a, a program of Christian freedom where you could worship as you saw fit within, within particular bounds. But... Um, and, and they had really experienced that freedom for much of the last 10 years. What would that mean for Owen? A lot of it would depend on, you know, how well you could hide, um, how quickly you could reverse your allegiances, uh, change your politics, downplay your involvement in the revolution over the last 10 years. Um, it, might, it might depend on your resolve to endure defeat, uh, to endure new forms of persecution, uh, persecution meaning for, for the type of worship that uh, you thought uh, God demanded of you but was now outlawed, um, how well could you endure that? It may depend on the community of believers around you. Uh, could you support one another um, and encourage one another and spur one, other, spur one another on in godliness while experiencing that persecution? So those were questions that Owen was going to ask by 1660. 
because um, he was totally removed from Oxford. Um, he would gather a house church, uh, uncertain about whether all of his work had been in vain, um, wondering if, if the hopes that he had for his country, they were long gone, or if maybe he could still, from the margins, shape Christian culture, even as one who had lost everything. Um, and so that, I think, is the most exciting point in Owen's life. He writes the most, and there's the most um, activity there. But that's where we'll plan to pick up next, next, next week. Um, so when I have any questions, I know we covered it a lot. Um, Thanks, Zach. I got a question about if, if do we know much about Owen's, like like how he wrote his writing habits? Like, was he writing everything out by hand? Was he dictating to someone? Um, do we know? I'm, I'm, I ask simply because you know, other other great Christian writers will complain about how they they don't have enough time to write, but then they'll produce just enormous enormous amounts of material. Augustine is one of them. And Augustine presumably was dictating to someone who was taking it down, so he had an advantage. But how is Owen doing it? Do we know? That's a great question. I don't know, Tom. Um, I, I've never read anything about him having somebody uh, write, write for him. Um, I've, I've always assumed that, that he was doing this literally him, himself. Um, I really don't know. I've, I've never heard anything um, otherwise. Um, yeah, it, uh, a, a lot of the things that, that remain of his work that we have, it's, it's a result of people who were taking notes on what he was saying. A lot of his sermons um, that you read in, in his published works, um, it's, it's been reprinted with Banner of Truth. That's, if, you, if you go to get um, a volume of Owen's works, that's probably where you'll get it. Um, those, uh, there's, there's a few volumes on his sermons, and a lot of those are... Are, are from people who are taking notes on his sermons. And then there's, there's still more volumes that, that are unpublished, notebooks of people who were taking notes on his sermons. So, um, so it, a lot of what we have from him is, is from others. But I don't know, I don't know about like these, these 600-page books that he was writing. Is, did he have help getting that out on, on paper? I haven't heard that he had, but I don't know. Um, yeah. I've got a question. I mean, it seems like politics and religion is very much uh, related and, uh, and kind of like uh, they affect one another. During the course of history, uh, especially of, uh, you know, you know, Christianity, which is more powerful, do you think? And I'm just wondering if, uh, you know, if the course of history changed and politics changed with the uh, uh, you know, direction of uh, how we uh, worship change also. Yeah, well, this is, this is definitely a, a period where politics and religion are totally intertwined. Um, can, you, can, you, can you say, say again what... what well, let's what, say uh, if, uh, um, you know, the uh, Protestants and uh, the rest of the, uh, the uh, tradition I believe in, let's say, uh, if, if it went one way versus the other, would... We change the, uh, you know, as, as a Christian. Oh, yeah, I see. Um, 
Well, yeah, I, I think so. Like a, a, lot of, a lot of what happens here in 17th century England has you know, massive ripples that, that, that we experience now. A lot of the writings on religious toleration um, would, would come about here in Owen's little literary network. You know, pe people like his student, John Locke, um, and, and Owen, in this, in this next bit that we'll talk about next week, was, was a fierce advocate for religious toleration. And a lot of those ideas would spread um, on and on into, in, in to, to what we, we experience today in a lot of ways. But o Owen's greatest fear, um, especially with the return of the, the king, was that the Protestant Reformation might be reversed. Um, and he, he wasn't subtle about that fear at all. That, that was deeply in his mind. Um, and so you think about the, that possibility with, with a king now coming back who, um, depending on his, his religious persuasion, could, could you know, mandate um, what this, the state religion would be. And Owen feared that um, that might be Roman Catholicism. And, and so, um, you know, maybe England is, is a Catholic nation had uh, things gone differently, but that was certainly something that Owen feared. Um, it, it, yeah. The question I'm really trying to drive at is, uh, you know, to answer is that, uh, what drives change? Is it God or is it, I mean, if you're talking politics, it's really human being in power, right? I mean, power. Uh, how, uh, you know, man drives, does man drive change or is it really God drive changes? Yeah, I think, I think as Christians, we, we'll, when we look at, at history, we're, we're going to take the position that, that God is providentially guiding all of history. Um, and so uh, for, for the Puritans especially, they understood their role um, uh, maybe in some different ways that, than we do now, where, um, uh, you know, they, they, I don't know, more, more hand, hands-on. They, they thought that it was, it was uh, their duty to um, establish uh, particular forms of government that only allowed uh, worship that, that God had um, uh, called for in Scripture. Um, so they, 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 I think they had a, had a providential view of history and that it was God uh, to, to bless or to judge um, governments and people according to you know, their obedience or disobedience to him. Um, but they, they also had a deep understanding of their responsibility to you know, live and, and, and form, form systems that, that promoted godliness. Um, I guess I was brought up in the church before I went to Redeemer. And uh, uh, there wasn't much teaching. And uh, uh, what was I getting at? Um, it's a, a, a sin was out there. So we went to Christian roller skating rinks. We went to Christian theater. We watched Christian shows. We went to Promise Keepers. And 
It was never that sin was in here. And in 1994, when I was going up to Woodstock with a friend of mine who was a Christian, it, my eyes were open. That sin wasn't just Satan and, and the world, that it was me, that I was sinful. And that just changed everything. That changed my whole theological outlook. That's all I want to say. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. I wonder if you did actually come up with a calculation on uh, oh, yeah. how long it would <laughs> take you. Not that we could read at your rate, but uh, in just in terms of his, not all the notebooks and that, but, but just his printed works. I yeah, I don't remember what we, okay. what we came to, but it was like, I'm 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 a I'm a bit of a slow reader, so I I think it was taking me like two and a half minutes to finish a page, um, so whatever that equals. Uh, I mean, there's eight million words. Um, I I did it in a, in 13 months, but I I I wasn't I wasn't working full time then. I was just studying. So yeah. if you can, I don't know what it was four or five hours, just reading pretty wow. regularly. <laughs> but uh, I I was motivated by having to do it for for an academic cause um and i think without that kind of pressure looming that that wouldn't be practical but um at, my advisor has has said something that um he says in the foreword to his book on owen where he said at times when he was reading owen he felt like he couldn't die soon enough you know <laughs> and he just keeps writing and writing and writing and um and you get that sometimes, but there's so there's so much good stuff, yeah. you know. And um, uh, I I won't make that journey again. I I absolutely won't won't um, I I don't think anyway. But. So my question is this: you you uh, mentioned communion with God being one of your favorites, and I I wonder this this notion of distinguishing mm -hmm. the communion that we have with each of the persons of the Trinity. Yeah. Communing with the, the love of the Father, the mercy of the Son, the power of the Spirit. Uh, any, any testimony as to how as, as, as that is kind of um, settled into your consciousness, how that has actually affected the way you relate to God or the way you commune with God in any, in any concrete ways? Any comments there? Yeah, um, uh, I don't know so much about concrete ways, but but as you kind of just think about the book, um, I don't. I, I guess I've kind of kind of rested in in seeing how the Godhead is working together in harmony. Um, the like thinking about the Father um, electing. The, the sun purchasing and, and the spirit applying, um, I don't know, just meditating on, on those things is, has been really, really helpful. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I had a note on, on, on that text that I was going to look at. Um, uh, or, uh, this, this is from a, a writer named Kelly Capick. Um, who's, who's writing on the book, and he, he says, the term communion as used by Owen is, is used in a, in a wider sense than is consistent with that which is now generally attached 
to it in religious phraseology. Actually, I'm sorry, this isn't from Kelly Kate. This is in the forward to the, to, uh, the, the edition of Owen's works. Um, but when Owen's using communion, he's saying it, it, it denotes not merely the interchange of feeling between God and his gracious character and the soul in a gracious state, but rather the gracious relationship upon which that holy interchange is based. And so I guess it, it's um, help, helped inform my experience of God, not, not so much resting on my feeling of intimacy with him, which, which ebbs and flows, but recognizing that my experience of him is actually rooted in something that's foundational in, in God's covenant with me, which is, which is really reassuring. Um, so I, I think that's probably um, the impact it's had. That sort of relates to my question. And I suspect we've all heard prayers where someone thanks the Father for dying for them. Uh, the old patropassionism where the Father is confused with the Son. And I think a lot of Christians today, unlike Owen, like the Trinity doesn't really make a difference. It's something that we believe, but it's, I think maybe some people feel it's a distinction without a difference. Like God is God, and whether he's one or three, uh, three and one, I don't know if it informs their, their spiritual life on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think that's wrong. But in Owen's view, in your view, like what are Christians missing if they don't have a robust view of the Trinity? And I think you answered it just right now. Um, but are, are there any other things where like, we're really robbing ourselves of, of the full revelation of the scripture if we don't have a, a, a robust view of the Trinity and how the Trinity is at work yeah. from beginning to end? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I, I think, it, uh, I think what, what, what you're missing is, is um, I think what Owen's getting at in this book really is, is that you, you're missing a, a scriptural understanding of, of your relationship to God. It, for Owen, so much of it is, is, you know, it's rested on what God has done for us in Christ and, and what the Spirit has um, made effectual in, in our lives. Um, I, think, I think you lack consistency. Um, you, I think your experience of God may be, may be subject to change. Um, I, I think it shores you up kind of, kind of what, I, what, I, what I was saying to John there um, about you know, your, your experience of God is, is more informed by, by what God has decreed that, that he would do and promised. Um, I think what Owen does in the book, it also, it also give, gives us, um, it gets us out of ourselves a little bit and more focused on God, which is always a good thing. Um, and so I think it's kind of interesting to think about your experience of God first as something that God has initiated and then allowed us to participate in um, by His Spirit, not necessarily something that, that, that we're, we're meeting God to, on, on our own, but that, but that, you know, that experience is kind of wrapped up in um, this, this broader work that he's, he's done for us and uh, in, in redeeming us.
I just wanted to make a, a literary comment. So you mentioned that, that Owen wrote about 8 million words. And they, they say that um, Augustine was the most expansive ancient author that we, that we have his works preserved. And he wrote 5 million. And, and the, the, just to give a context to folks, that's, um, there's like this famous you know, quote where that's the equivalent of writing you know, a 300 page monograph every year for 40 years. And for Owen, it'd be 60 years. So that is, <laughs> it, that is a massive, massive yeah. amount of writing. I think you're building the case that maybe he did have a scribe or somebody, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, it's remarkable. And you know, next next week we'll 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 talk about two million of those words, um, where which which belong just to his commentary on the Book of Hebrews, um, which is the longest commentary I think there is on a single book of the Bible. Uh, yeah. Well, thank you, everyone. God bless.